Well, good morning uh, once again. Um, this is what we're um, talking about today. <laughs> not church and politics. Wow. We're not, we're not doing that one. Uh, well, anyhow, last week we kicked off this um, new series, Coffee Mug Christianity. Last week, we, as we opened it up, we said that a lot of times people will contribute sayings to the Bible that aren't necessarily there, or they'll, they'll take verses completely out of context, and many times they'll, they'll slap them on a coffee mug, too, and, and because it makes them feel good, right? It sounds good. Last week, we talked about the saying, God will never put more on you than you can bear. That saying's nowhere in the Bible. In fact, it couldn't be farther from the truth of Scripture. The truth of the matter is, if we could handle every problem that come our way, if we could cover our own sin, we wouldn't need God in our life, and we would have no need for a Savior. But let me tell you, we can't cover our own sin, and we need something greater than ourselves. Look at this little, um, see if I get the right thing. There you go. Look, someone actually put that on a coffee mug. God will never put... More, give you more than you can handle. And you can buy that for the low, low price of $11. Just because someone can put something on a mug does not make it scriptural. It just means they want to make a profit from it, right? That's all it, that's all it really means. Hopefully your coffee cup, though, isn't the only place you go to for your morning devotional. Now, now you, may, you may have it with you <laughs> for your morning devotional, but hopefully that's not the only place you go to get your scripture. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was talking to someone this week. Someone who's going through absolute hell on earth. Going through one of the most challenging times in their life. And without God in their life, I know this, there's no way that they could make it through. Without God, they would be absolutely crushed. In this life, there are going to be things that are going to come along that we just can't handle, that we can't make it on our own. But thankfully, God has given us his spirit, and that spirit that dwells within you, can I tell you, that spirit is greater than any enemy that is going to come your way. It's his spirit, though. It's not us in our ability and our strength. It is when we are weak, he's made strong. While we don't seek out those, those moments that feel like they're absolutely crushing us, have you ever noticed, though, that it's in those moments, in those moments where you feel like you're being squeezed or pressed or crushed, it's in those moments that his Holy Spirit is often the freshest. That it's, that it's often the fact that in those moments, you feel like he is ever present and he is so close. In those moments that we know in our own strength, the situation is far beyond what we can bear. In those moments, we know he is there with us. And today, as we continue in our series, this morning we're actually going to look at a verse that's often taken out of context by believers. And believe it or not, it's actually even quite often used by prosperity gospel preachers. And they use it in association 
with the promise of riches. Now, without naming any names, because I'm not going to go there, let me just give you a few of the quotes that I've, I've found, actual quotes from preachers. Some people come to me and say, well, I came here to get some peace, not money, and I tell them, you need money, otherwise you ain't going to get no peace. Some people say it's about peace, joy, and love. No, it's about money. These are actually preachers that have said these things. God is trying to put material wealth into your hands. The Lord told me this is the end time message. He is coming back, or is he is coming to look for his church without spot or wrinkle, but one of the biggest wrinkles the church has is being broke. How about one of the biggest wrinkles the church has is trying to live in sin and claim that they're not? Anyhow. Money, come to me now. I'm not making this stuff up. If you are struggling financially, then you have not got the victory. God didn't create you to be average or poor. These statements. These statements may fly in in some of our affluent areas of some of our large metropolitan areas, but can I tell you, these statements don't mean a whole lot to someone born in a third world country. Come on, if, if God was trying to put material wealth in the hands of every believer, can I tell you this? He ain't doing a very good job. I guess he can't do it. If that's what he's truly trying to do, according to that, that quote, he must have forgot about all of those believers who live in countries where the average citizen makes less than $1,000 a year. Those things all sound good to us here in our consumer-driven economy but it doesn't make them biblical. So to make those things sound a little more spiritual, you'll often hear them tied to Scripture. You'll you'll hear them tied to verses like this, God will give you the desires of your heart. You have not because you ask not. And the one we're going to talk about today, before I go there, before I put it on the screen, is probably going to step on a toe or two. But can I ask you, will you stay with me for just a few moments this morning? Will you stay with me till the end? Don't don't get too mad at me yet, because let me tell you, I've used this scripture time and time again. I love this verse. And when we see this verse on a coffee mug, it's almost always in the NIV translation. So you got to use the right translation to get the Bible to say what you want sometimes, don't you? says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Check out this mug. They didn't even put the whole verse up there. They just highlighted prosper. Plans to prosper you. This one, they just, they said, plans, prosper, hope, future. They just keep pulled out the key points as they, they want. Hey, if, if you're going to get a mug, and put a verse on it, at least get one that has the best part highlighted. you got a hope and a future in him, don't you? That first one, they weren't even trying to hide it, were they? <laughs> Plans to prosper you. Here's what I can tell you. You've never probably ever seen this verse on a mug in the ESV version. Why? Because this is the way it says it. I don't think I have it up there. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Ain't nobody putting God's got a plan for welfare for me on a cuff, are they? That don't sell quite as good as God's got a plan to prosper me, does it? God's got a plan for welfare just doesn't sound quite as appealing, does it? But guess what? This verse was never intended to be your link to riches and fame. Oh, I know we would never say some of those things that those prosperity gospel preachers said. We wouldn't say those. But how many times have we declared that verse in context with nothing bad is going to come my way? Taking it completely out of context, y'all. The word of God was never meant to be your genie in a bottle. The word of God is not to be cherry-picked so you can just take what you like. The word of God, the scripture, is not meant to be a vending machine where you can walk up and push A1 and out pop your dream just like you want. The promises of God are connected to context. So what's the context of this well-known, often quoted scripture? Again, before I go there, let me be clear. I believe this passage of scripture, that quote, I believe is a promise of God. It was a promise to the people of Judah, and through Jesus Christ, I believe that promise is available for us today as well. That being said, you need to understand context. So let's look at the verse in context. Let's start with verse number one of Jeremiah 29. It says this. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hand of Eliasah, the son of Shaphan. This is hard to read, y'all. And uh, Jemariah, the son of Hekiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I probably could have skipped those two verses. <laughs> but they're part of the context, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Thus, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are complete and ba in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. We love verse 11, though, don't we? 
We love verse 11, but what about verses 1 through 10? And what about the chapters that precede this one? Do we love them? Do we even know them? Or do we just love God's plan is to prosper me? So who is this addressing? What was going on? What was the promise God was giving? given? What was the warning? What were the requirements for the promise to come to pass? Those are the same kind of questions you need to ask when you're reading any passage or any scripture. But you really need to look at it if you're going to proclaim the promise that's within it. If you want the then statement to come to pass, you better know what the if statement is. For example, people love to quote Deuteronomy. I'll be blessed coming in and I'll be blessed going out. I'll be the head and I will not be the tail. People love to, to quote that, but what about the rest of it that says, if you keep my commands? We love, to, we love to proclaim God's promise over our land. People love to pray that our land be healed according to your promises. But what about if my people will humble themselves and repent? If we're going to declare the promises of Jeremiah 29, we ought to at least know what it is we're declaring, don't you think? Knowing when a letter was sent, what was going on, plays a crucial role in how we read it and how we interpret it. This letter wasn't being sent at the end of captivity. It wasn't being sent after 70 years to where they, they were just saying, okay, hold on, it's almost over. You've almost made it. No, this letter was sent at the very onset of their captivity, at the very beginning of 70 years. This passage of Jeremiah is actually part of a letter that was sent to the people who had just been taken into captivity. To give you a little idea of the timeline here, this letter is written roughly 10 years before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put into the fiery furnace. This letter is written almost 60 years before Daniel is thrown into the lion's den at the ripe old age of about 84. I know that doesn't match up with your felt board. You know, the, the, the Sunday school felt board that had a young man pictured going into the lion's den? No, Daniel was already there in captivity for about 58 years at this point. So this is, this is six kings later when he goes into the lion's den. See, context matters. This letter was written 60 years before that moment. So picture this. The year is 597 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem, and after the battle, he takes 10,000 people captive with him back to Babylon. Ezekiel, the prophet, being one of them. The people had been defeated in battle, meaning this, many men had died. Many fathers, many sons, maybe many brothers, and those who weren't lost in battle, many of them were wounded. A and they found themselves forced to leave everything they knew behind. They're marched 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is about 50 miles outside of what is uh, modern-day Baghdad. So if you kind of get the idea of what this entails. This wasn't jump in the car and go. It's marched 500 miles after you've been beaten in battle. They're marched 
across rough terrain to a place they've never been, to a land where they had nothing, to a place where they had no freedom, to be subject to a people they did not know, all with the, the knowledge of we left some loved ones behind and we don't even know if they're dead or alive. So to say these people are in a pretty tough spot would probably be an understatement. It's safe to say they were discouraged and in, wor and in need of a word of encouragement. So that's exactly why this letter is sent. So God himself, through a letter that Jeremiah pens, sends a word of encouragement to these people who had just been taken captive. And in this letter, he simply gives them some basic advice. What did it say? Verse number five. It said, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit. What's that mean? I in other words, though you're in a place you may not want to be, make the most of it and make it your home. Isn't that the exact opposite of what people normally want to do today? As, things that, as soon as things don't go your way, people are like, take my ball and I'm going home. They didn't have the choice of picking up their ball and walking away. They were, they were there and God's telling them, listen, build a house. You're going to be there a while. Make the best of it. Next he tells them in verse number six, take wives, beget sons, daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. What's it saying? It's saying be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. And then in verse number seven, he says, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. We like that one in the NIV as well because it says this. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into, uh, into. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. There's something about reading, if it prospers, you too will prosper, that sounds a whole lot better than in its peace you will have peace. This letter wasn't written in English, though. This letter was written in Hebrew. And that word used here is shalom. It can be tra translated prosperity, but more often it is translated peace. And more generally, it means wishing someone overall well, our welfare. And God is, God is saying here, he's saying, seek peace. Seek the welfare of the land. Pray for the peace so that you can live in peace. Pray for its welfare, and your welfare will be good. How fitting is this passage for today? Our land needs peace like never before. Four years ago, there were people who woke up and they were thrilled. And there were also people who woke up and were devastated. Ten days from now, we're going to see a repeat all over again. But here's what you need to know. God used King Nebuchadnezzar to carry out his plan. So no matter whether Biden or Trump wins, God is still sovereign, and he will carry out his plan. And what are we to do in that? We are to pray for the peace of the land. That's what our role is. 
Remember, th- this letter was being written to a group of people that had just lost everything. They had been taken captive. They had no freedom. And while they are, they are told to settle down here, they, they were very well aware of this one fact. Everything that they had could be taken away from them in a moment. And you got to read that with that context. When you're reading this passage, you got to read it in the context that, listen, they're in captive. They're, they're in exile, captive to the Babylonians. And at any moment, everything could be taken from them. It changes how you read it if you know that. When you read it with that in mind, peace to them was going to be way more important than finances. Peace was so much more important than finances that could be taken at any moment. Isn't that what we need as well? We've all seen over these last 20 years, we've seen 401ks go up. We've seen 401ks go down. We've seen price of our homes go up. We've seen the price of our homes come down. We've seen all kinds of things. We've seen jobs that looked like they would be there forever suddenly gone. In moments of complete upheaval, what you really need is the peace of God. And God says in this passage, seek peace. That means in 10 days, what we need to do, no matter how the election turns out, seek peace. And by all means, pray for whoever is elected because they are going to need wisdom that is far beyond their years. Peace is what we need. What else does he tell him there in verse number 8? For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. I, I don't even know how you do that, because like I can't hardly remember a dream. I definitely can't go to sleep and try to, to create a dream. But he's like, the dreams that you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. To understand this part of the letter, you have to understand context. You need to go back a couple of chapters and understand what Jeremiah is talking about here. There were false prophets that were there in the land. They were saying things like, don't worry, it's not going to be that bad. It's not gonna, we, we aren't going to be there very long. It's going to be okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. It'll be all right. That message stood in stark opposition to the message that Jeremiah was declaring the message that came straight from God. For the Lord declared, because of their disobedience, these people were going to be taken into captivity. Of course, people wanted to hear the other message, though, didn't they? But, uh, but Jeremiah's like, don't be deceived by that message. Don't fall for those false prophets. Don't start dreaming up your own dreams that go against the word of God. We'll do that, too, sometimes, won't we? Where, where uh, God has given us clear direction that lines up biblically with his word, but things don't happen the way we want them to happen in the time that we want them to happen. So we create our own dream and say, I think I can get here if I just do this. We find a shortcut, don't we? Here, Jeremiah's saying, listen, there ain't no shortcut. It's 70 years. You're going to be in exile. 
Today you need to be aware there are false prophets that tell you the real blessings of God lie in the financial windfalls. Beware. Beware of those who say, if you're struggling financially, you don't have victory. Beware. Jesus said, in this life, you'll have trouble. So I think I can have victory even if I have some financial struggle. Don't believe the lies that go against the very word of God. And Jeremiah tells the people, don't believe the lie that says it's not going to be rough. That being said, he also tells them, don't lose heart. It's going to be okay. The plight that you're in is not the end. Look at verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. In this passage... The Lord is saying, listen, my thoughts toward you are good. You do have a hope. You do have a future. The place that you're in right now is not the end. There's something greater on the other side. But we can't take that, that passage and pull it completely out of context, slap it on a coffee mug and say, you know what? Money come to me. Look at, look at the other side of that passage, verses 12 to 14. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. God had a plan for his people. But what was the requirement for it to come to pass? The people first had to call upon his name. They had to seek him with all their heart. The people had basically been put in timeout. That's what really happened here. It's a long time out, 70 years long. But they, 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 were, they were taken and, and, and put there because they had to come to a place of repentance. They had to come to a place where their hearts were tender and towards him. Their, their, their hearts had, had turned completely away. They had become completely disobedient to his commands, and it landed them in captivity. And the Lord is saying in this entire passage, this time of captivity, use this time to seek me. Use this time to turn from your ways. Use this time to return to me, to call upon me. And, and when you get to this place, then I will hear you. You see, if he would have allowed them to return too soon, they would have went right back to what they were doing before. Happens with your kids, right? You, you set them in time out. <laughs> they don't spend enough time there. What do they do? They get up and they go back to doing exactly what they were doing before. 
That's the reason for these 70 years here. The people had to turn their hearts away from the things that they were doing. They had to come to a place of brokenness so that they would be fully relying on Him. During their time in captivity, the people turned from their wicked ways. They devoted themselves to Him. And because of this, He did what, because they did what He commanded them to do, because of this, He fulfilled His promise. Jeremiah 29, 11 has been abused, but it doesn't mean it's not a promise of God. It's a beautiful promise. It's a beautiful promise that we can lay hold of because of the blood of Jesus. But when we tie this promise to financial prosperity, we are selling the promise short. There's so much more to this promise than a financial blessing. Don't cheapen the promise by tying it to your bank account. Ten years after hearing this letter, ten years later, Jeremiah, not, um, not Jeremiah, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ten years after this letter is written, they refuse to bow to a golden image. When faced with the fiery furnace, I can promise you this, the promise of finances is not what they stood upon. It wasn't the, the promise of prosperity that they were standing on in that moment. Plans to prosper you sounds great on a coffee mug. It'll probably even help getting people to drop some money into an offering bucket. But I'm going to tell you this, when faced with a fiery furnace... I want to know that the furnace is not the end. I want to know there's something beyond. I want to know in that moment that his thoughts, his thoughts toward me are good. And that he cares for my welfare. I want to know in that moment that he will never leave me or forsake me. When faced with sure demise, your bank account is not what's going to pull you through. It's the peace of God, the peace of God that goes beyond understanding. At 84 years old, being thrown into a lion's den, I'm sure Daniel wasn't thinking about the riches he had acquired. He was relying on the decades of relationship that for decade after decade, for king after king, Daniel put his trust in the Lord. He did not waver. He continued believing that there is a promise at the end. And he kept holding on to that. And that's why when put in that lion's den, he could have peace in that moment. In a place where peace is not even possible, Daniel had peace. I want to tell you this morning, he does have a hope and a future for you. It's a promise that you can take hold of. In Christ Jesus, we can know this world is not the end. We can know that, that our riches are not stored up here where moths and rust can destroy. 
we were in the chains and bondage of captivity to sin. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are free from its shackles. We have a promise of an eternal promised land. I know that some of you are going through it right now. And the flames are hot. But know this, they will not consume you. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Your circumstances are not the end. God's promises are so much greater. If right in the middle of the lion's den, God can shut the mouth of the devourer and give Daniel peace, then I tell you, he can do the same for you. So what mountain stands before you today? Let your faith begin to rise. What situation seems too much to conquer? Turn your face towards him. What circumstances pressing in? Call on the name of Jesus. Come to Him today, in this moment. Rest in the promise that this is not the end. Captive in Egypt, 400 years, and God led them out of that captivity into a promised land. In Babylon, 70 years captive. God returned them to that promised land. We have a promised land that's so much greater. Far greater than any earthly land. We have a promise eternal. So this morning, won't you put your trust in Him? In Him, in Him, we have a hope and a future. Amen? Let's pray.